Hello and welcome to Strange Sound. I'm Joe. This is episode 64 of Strange Sound. My goodness, we've been going for about, I'd say, what, 16 months now? Maybe longer? Close to that. Not sure. i got to look back, but it's been more than a year. And uh, still going strong, or still going. I don't know if we're going strong. <laughs> not sure what strong is with regard to podcasts. I think it has more to do with how many people are listening to you. And if that's the case, then not going so strong. But still, happy to do it. Glad to have you listening. Glad to have you with me. My standard disclaimer, as I always do, um, the views expressed on Strange Sound are my own. Uh, they represent the views neither of anyone that I'm associated with or anyone that I work with or anyone that I work for or any institution that I'm associated with or my friends or neighbors or my family members or my pets uh, or the cats that I work for. <laughs> my cats tell me what to do. I listen to them. Uh, they uh, These are not their views. Um, they haven't expressed their views to me and the issues that I discuss on Strange Sound, and uh, I haven't asked them. So, in any case, this is just about what I think, and you come here for that, and that is what I provide for you, if you're listening to this. Um, glad to have you with me. Um, as has been my habit of late, I am going to read my latest blog post, which you can find at big-green.net. If you go to big-green.net and click on the blog tab, you will uh, find a link to uh, the main blog that uh, that we do. Um, there are a couple of categories. One is called usual rubbish. You probably don't want to look at that <laughs> unless you're interested in the exploits of our band Big Green, which is a whole nother thing. Um, but you can also find a political rants category and that will lead you to, um, my string of posts that I've been doing for, I've been doing the blog for probably 20 years. Um, I don't know that you can get to all 20 years, um, via that one link, but you can probably dig back and find it. Um, I'm also... I do a mirror blog on, on Blogspot as well. Um, so wherever you want to find me, you can find me. You can The links are there at big-green.net. Um, pretty easy to find. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this most recent post that I did under political rants, one of my furious rants, if you will. Um, this is on a topic that's that's basically the second week running. And I don't usually do this with this blog. I usually try to mix it up a little bit unless there's something really, com some really compelling reason for me to stay on one subject for more than one week. So I try to like mix it up a little bit, but this um, Israel-Palestine uh, issue over the last few weeks has been just searing its way through my head and I just had to had to add a little bit to what I had said the week before and what I had talked about on on the podcast. So that is the topic of this week's blog post as well. And the title of the blog post is, and you will see this if you go to big-green.net, Knocking Down the Big Lies and Little Ones. 
And this is dated May 21st. It was posted Friday, May 21st. I am recording this on May 22nd, which is a Saturday. And as I always say, um, because I record this on a Saturday and post it on a Monday, with issues like this in particular, things change so rapidly that the uh, circumstances of behind some of the things that I'm talking about, both on my blog post and in the reading of it, when I expand upon it, uh, may have changed. Those circumstances may have changed over the course of time. Um, and so that's going to throw a different light on whatever it is I have to say here. So just bear in mind, I am saying this on May 22nd in the afternoon. <laughs> so that roots me firmly in time and space. I am rooted pretty firmly in space. I will say that much. In any case, here is my furious rant for the week. Knocking down the big lies and little ones. It's not typical for me to blog about the same topic two weeks in a row, but it's a little hard for me to turn my attention away from the bloodletting in Gaza. As someone who has been following this conflict from a comfortable distance for five decades, it has always been a prominent issue for discussion and disagreement. I can recall arguing with my friends in junior high about it, probably on the occasion of the 1973 war or shortly thereafter, and I have to say, parenthetically here, I was uh, in junior high in 1973, <laughs> so that, that gives you some idea. As most conflicts, it is fueled largely with lies, a category that includes distortions, misleading tropes, and outright falsehoods. You've heard the really big lies in basically any news channel you listen to or watch. Most of the pro-war voices you'll hear read off the same lies, talking points used by the Israeli government and military. Let's look at some of these points. Big lie number one, Israel has the right to defend itself like any other nation. This is a handy one as it sets out a pretty simple principle that's hard for most people to counter, all things being equal. But all things are not equal. Some nations are strong, others not so much. Israel, for instance, has one of the most powerful militaries in the world. It also has the active support of the planet's last remaining superpower. Spoiler alert, it's the United States. That means states like Israel have both the right and the ability to defend themselves. On the other hand, weak societies, including stateless peoples like the Palestinians, have the same right but far less ability. So while the statement is, on its face, almost obviously true, it is meaningless in the context of this lopsided conflict. Big lie number two. Hamas uses the Palestinian people as human shields, quote-unquote. This one usually comes in the form of criticizing Hamas for having offices in populated areas. First of all, Gaza is one of the most densely populated places on earth, so there's no strategic depth for Hamas. Second, Hamas is the government of Gaza, so naturally they have an official presence in neighborhoods throughout the territory's urban zones. Third, what does the IDF think? That Hamas is going to stand out in the middle of a field with targets on their backs? waiting for Israel's U.S.-supplied munitions to blow them to bits? Not a realistic expectation, frankly. In any case, I'm sure the Israeli government and military have offices all over Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and other population centers, so this point is blatantly hypocritical. Big line number three. The IDF is the world's most humane military. This one is frankly infuriating. 
Sure, the Israeli military sometimes calls the owner of a building before they blow it up, but they also just blow things up in the middle of the night. If they're so obsessed with minimizing civilian casualties, why do they use high explosives in densely populated areas? It's quite predictable that people are going to die in large numbers if you do that. If the IDF's intent is truly not to kill civilians, then they're either completely disingenuous or the worst shots anyone has ever seen. My own feeling is that they seek to cause pain and misery for the population in Gaza with this military campaign because that is what they do in the non-military context all the time. They are still punishing the Palestinians for voting for Hamas in 2006. They want them to turn on Hamas out of anger and frustration and overthrow their administration. Where is the humanity in that? That's collective punishment. I'm adding parenthetically. I could go on, but that's probably enough. There's a lot more to say about all these issues, and I will try to address some of them in other contexts on Strange Sound, as I am right here, on Twitter, as everyone does, and elsewhere. This killing is unacceptable, and Americans need to use our leverage to stop it now. Love you. Joe. Okay, so that was Friday. (laughs) Now, mind you, I usually write my blog a couple of days early. So when I post it on a Friday morning at like five o'clock in the morning, it's already old. So by that point, there had been a ceasefire declared. It had, had been negotiated between Israel and Hamas. You know, through the supposed good graces of the Biden administration and their foreign policy team. Right. Okay, so that's, there has been a ceasefire. It has appeared to hold over the time between when it was declared and the time that I am recording this now. Um, there you have it. So a lot of people are going around saying, you know, yes, uh the United States used its influence on Israel to stop the killing. And, you know, it's the, this is a diplomatic triumph of some kind. Quite honestly, uh, that's crap. That's just crap. I mean, <laughs> they allowed this to go on for 11 days. That's probably all Netanyahu needed. And that was maybe all that they could tolerate because they were getting a lot of pushback. And by they, I mean the Biden administration, right? Because the Biden administration does have leverage over the Israeli government, like every American administration does. Just like we do with client states all over the world. The example I like to give people is uh, the bloodletting in in, uh, East Timor by Indonesia towards towards the end of their occupation of of East Timor back in the late 90s. I think it was 1998 when there was a referendum. It might have been 1999. I'm sure, I got to look look up my references on this, but the Indonesian military which had been occupying East Timor for 25 years at that point um and killing its people killed about a third of the population over that time. The Indonesian military didn't like the way <laughs> East Timorese had voted in a referendum for independence. I believe I'm remembering the sequence here correctly, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, and I will be glad to retract this if I need to. But uh, they they obviously didn't like something about 
about how the East Timor race were approaching the the question of independence. So they started killing them and beating the shit out of them. And the Clinton administration at the time uh, more or less stood there and watched. And they stood there and watched, and they stood there and watched, and they stood there and watched. And Indonesians felt, you know, licensed to beat the living piss out of the East Timorese and kill a bunch of them and beat a bunch of them up. And then finally, Bill Clinton's uh, administration, the foreign policy team, and I think Clinton himself basically said, okay, that's enough. And they stopped immediately because they know who pulls the strings. They were acting under, under license from the United States because their military is highly dependent on the on American support, their, their government, by they I'm talking about Indonesia now, Indonesia and the Indonesian military is highly dependent on the support of the United States in order to do what they do, which at that time was carrying out a pogrom against, against the, uh, the Timorese. And that's what they did. 100%. And when, and when the United States said stop, they stopped immediately. And the next thing you knew, Suharto was gone, the longtime dictator that had taken over in the 1960s, butcher that, who had killed like a million of his own citizens in coming to power and had killed hundreds of thousands of Timorese over the course of um, the years between their invasion of the place in, it was a former Portuguese colony in 1975 and the late 90s, killed hundreds of thousands of them. Um, and he, he fell shortly thereafter. Um, and the Timorese did, you know, finally get their independence. It took them more than a quarter century, but they got there. And good for them. And the same sort of principle works with Israel. I mean, you know, the United States likes to let them do the deed, you know, finish the job. You know, I hope this won't take very long, uh, you know, because it's because it's becoming uncomfortable. They're killing too many kids, you know, and they get a little bit more uncomfortable a little bit faster now than they used to. So like the last time this happened be- between Israel and Gaza was 2014 and the the Obama administration let it go on for quite a while. Um, and then they were obviously getting impatient. And at that point, that's when it stopped. But some of you may remember um, public comments by um, Secretary of State um, John Kerry at the time being slightly critical of the Israeli government, you know, prosecuting, how they were prosecuting this this um, attack on Gaza um, in kind of offhand sort of live mic type comments. But my suggestion here is that they probably knew what they were doing. <laughs> they were signaling, you know, sort of behind the scenes and they're also signaling in public that, you know, we, we, you know, this is, you're done. That's enough. Time to stop now, BB. And again, it was BB once again. I hate to call him BB because it makes him sound cute. He's not cute. He's a thug and a crook. But 
that aside, if it wasn't for Bibi, it'd be somebody else, right? It's the policy. It's the, it's the governmental policy that sort of transcends whatever, um, whatever administration is in charge at any given time. And so, you know, the stuff you hear about quiet diplomacy, you know, quiet, relentless diplomacy, bringing things together. Yeah, that's great. But guess what? They gave them diplomatic cover for over a week to beat the living shit out of the Palestinian people to collectively punish them for something that you should expect people to do when you're crushing them. The fact that they're firing missiles into Israel shouldn't be any surprise to Israel after what they do to them on a daily basis and what they've been doing to Gaza for decades. What's surprising is that that doesn't happen all the time. That's horrible. And there's been, you know, there's there has been, this time around, there's been more pushback because American people are shifting on this issue a bit and it's reflected in their elected representatives. We've seen it in Congress, the Betsy McAuliffe, uh, certainly Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, obviously, and a number of others, you know, other members of the squad, other progressive members, to a greater and a lesser extent. That always did occur before in previous decades and under previous administrations, but not to this extent. There is a a significant pushback. Uh, They've been taking issue with a $730 million arms sale to Israel, and I can understand that. But we need to bear in mind, too, that (laughs) sale or no sale, there is a deep and complex and multi-level relationship between the American military and the Israeli military, the American intelligence services and the Israeli intelligence services, and, you know, diplomatic relations sort of bolted on top of that. And, and we we got sort of a glimpse of that. You get you, There's plenty of different ways to see this, right? They They consider installations, they consider... Facilities in Israel as part of um, America's military infrastructure, and they protect it as such. The American military considers that, you know, sort of primary assets. It considers those primary assets. And after the 2014 pogrom that they that they committed on on Gaza, that killed 2,000 people or more. Um and destroyed the place the last time, uh, the last major time, I should say, that hit it many times since. It was reported, and I don't remember who did the reporting, but I do remember the reporting that as Israel was carrying out its attack on Gaza in 2014, they had needed resupply of some of the armaments that they were using, and they had gotten... Again, they were using things like white phosphorus. And they had access to forward-based munitions that the United States government had placed within reach of the Israeli military. I believe it was in Israel itself, but don't quote me on that. I know it was someplace within reach of the Israeli military. And there there was no need, in other words, there's there's no need for an arms transfer. These are assets that the American military had placed in the region 
and the Israeli military had access to it like they were part of the American military. This is the type of relationship that our militaries have with one another. So we can stop arms sales. That's I think that's a great idea, making them contingent on on behavior in some way, like we do with other countries, supposedly. Not very well, but we should probably start making a point of it. That's great, but we need to <laughs> we need to take a broader look at the relationship between our military and their military and how they operate. I mean, our missiles are their missiles. Our guns are their guns. Right? I think there's a lot of that going on. And I you know, if I can find that that reporting, I will share that, but it's you may remember that yourself if you've been following this issue, you may remember that. It's extremely problematic. But that what that means and again, this is not it's not necessarily unique. It's unique in its magnitude because we give more aid to Israel than any other country on earth. Uh, probably second in line is Egypt, and that's part of the same conflict. So that's Egypt and Israel are in a sort of a class by themselves. But <laughs> it's not that dissimilar to relationships that we have with other militaries around the world, like the South Korean military. And I've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, according to Bruce Cummings, and I think he's a pretty good source on, on South Korea, <laughs> They are basically under the command of the American military if war breaks out. They are going to be taking command directly from American commanders if there's a war with North Korea. Um, which is to say, you know, that's a kind of attenuated version of sovereignty. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that we have the same relationship with Israel. It's different. But uh, what I'm saying is we have these complex multi-decade, you know, deep, rich relationships between our military and other foreign militaries um, around the world that is a product of the American empire that's been built up since World War II, particularly. Not exclusively since World War II, but but in, in a broad, more global sense since World War II. I just wanted to make that point. I didn't really talk about that very much in the blog post. Um, also, in addition to that, I don't know, the Biden administration, well, Biden himself, his statement a couple of days ago where he was talking about how they want to do, you know, start a initiative to rebuild Gaza. Well, that, well, that sounds great. That sounds great. But we're going to deal with the Palestinian Authority, not Hamas. We're not going to deal with Hamas. We're not going to let Hamas use the money to, to get more weapons. You know, We're not going to deal with Hamas. Um, you know, this is nothing new, right? For one thing, if this were a standard type of conflict where it's one country versus another and there's there's an ongoing conflict and you're trying to find a diplomatic solution to it, you talk to your enemy. You talk to the other side in order to find a solution. That's what you do. If you're not talking to Hamas and you have a problem with Hamas, then you're not, you're not doing anything like diplomacy. You should be talking to them. There should be a relationship in there. But they're afraid to do that. Well, you know, I don't want to, maybe afraid is the wrong word. 
right? I, I think they are afraid of looking like they're doing that. I don't even really think they want to do that, right? I think they, I think they're just fine not having anything to do with Hamas. But Hamas was elected to run the Palestinian Authority in Gaza in 2006. They didn't like that. And the United States and the Palestinian Authority and Israel had planned to overthrow the Hamas government in Gaza in 2006. I think it was 2006, 2007. It was after the election. And they didn't like the way it was going, and they were demonizing them. Of course, they were saying this is terrible, and you know they were basically blaming the voters, and they were cutting off Gaza, and they were doing all the stuff that they've been doing ever since. And, and they were going to overthrow Hamas. But what happened was Hamas got wise to it, and they kicked the Palestinian Authority out of Gaza. They did a preemptive coup. In other words, they took over, they in essence took over Gaza from the Palestinian Authority in advance of the Palestinian Authority sort of ousting Hamas from any kind of electoral office, right? They sort of preempted that, and that's that's when everybody's heads exploded in the Bush administration and in Israel, of course. Um, and they were just, you know, that's it's it's been a massive breach ever since, but they there's no love lost with Hamas. Never has been, but I mean, since then it's just been, you know, a total breach. And they just will not deal with them. Now, it bears reminding that Hamas itself, when it was first established, I think in the late 80s, it was during during the first intifada, that it had some support from the Israeli intelligence services according to reporting on that. And that's because Israel was always trying to find a counterweight to the PLO and the occupied territories. At the time, you know, that was at the time I'm talking about in the late eighties, you know, uh, the Palestinian liberation organization was still headquartered in Tunis and they were trying to find a counterweight. Now it just, <laughs> That's fairly consonant with what the United States used to do all the time. The United States always supported Islamist movements in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, um, to support their foreign policy aims. You know, Israel was doing kind of the same thing. You know, they were trying to set up a divide and conquer routine. They were trying to set up a counterbalance to the PLO. PLO's influence was was kind of waning in the territories at that point, frankly. And at that time, Israel was not talking. They they made a point of not talking to the PLO, right? They were like, we, we're not going to deal with the PLO at all. No, not going to talk to them under any circumstances. As someone who's been alive as long as I have, I remember a lot of the gyrations, right? I mean, it was, first there were no Palestinians, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. There's no such thing as Palestinians. And then it was like they were Jordanians, Jordanian infiltrators. The PLO was stationed in Jordan at the time. And then they they got they got routed by the Hashemite Hussein kingdom in, in Jordan. That's about the time of the Black September movement back in the early 70s. 
um, they got pushed out into Lebanon. And then, of course, there was the multiple conflicts with Lebanon um, over the Palestinian over the Palestinian Liberation Organization, organization being based in Beirut at that time in the mid to late 70s and into the 80s until they blew up Beirut, basically, and they they drove the PLO out. PLO went to Tunis from there. But it was always like, you know, okay, we're, you know, we're, we're not going to deal with the PLO. <laughs> and then it was, you know, we're not going to, through the 80s, I can remember the trope being, you know, there will be no second Palestinian state because they were saying that Jordan was a Palestinian state because Jordan has a large Palestinian population. Queen Noor of Jordan is a Palestinian, ethnic Palestinian. And there is a large population, and they, they don't just live in, in refugee camps. They live, I don't know that they're citizens, but they live in Jordan as residents. And, you know, Israel would call Jordan a Palestinian state in those days which it most assuredly is not and never has been. Palestinians live, you know, their homeland is Palestine. <laughs> That's it. Jordan is not Palestine. Um, and then after that, uh, they were dealing, the Israelis wanted to deal with Palestinians in the territories. That's when the Madrid talks started in the, mostly on the prompting of, you know, the Bush administration, the first Bush administration in the United States, the Madrid talks, the talks that sort of headed in the direction of the of the Oslo agreements. But the Oslo agreements were an effort to sort of undercut the Madrid process um, by making a deal, by cutting a deal with Arafat, you know, of the PLO, who was, you know, anxious to have some kind of a settlement where he you know, he would end up being called president, right? So he basically gave away the store in the Oslo agreements. And I won't go into detail about this because, again, I'm not a, I'm not a diplomatic expert. I've just been following this issue and sort of through, through reporting and through just, you know, following it over the decades. And if you want to read about this, you know, read what Edward Said wrote about it. You read what Chomsky wrote about it. You can there's there's plenty of resources on this. If I can find a, a good, you know, sort of primer on this, I will I will include it in, in the show notes on the on the uh, podcast. Um just for your further edification. But again, I am not a historian. <laughs> this is just my own point of view. I guess what I'm getting at in essence is that this business of we will never deal with Hamas, it's really just we do not want to have a settlement with Palestinians. We do not want to get into a position where we're negotiating with Palestinians in good faith. Because if we do that, then we need to give up something. We do not want to give up the things that we can take by force. Because we can take these things by force as long as we're doing it gradually, as we have been, we, Israel, have been since 1967 gradually incorporating elements of the West Bank, certainly East Jerusalem, into Israel proper, you know, building the infrastructure around it, 
moving people into the, the usable parts of the territories, the more desirable parts of the territories, walling those people off from the indigenous population there, which is Palestinians, um, and marginalizing those people so that their lives are miserable and they're kept out of the way. They're basically treating them like they treat like our our government and our basically our white majority up until recent decades has have treated black people here and indigenous people here. It's containing them. It's keeping them from getting too far. <laughs> it's, you know, not wanting to negotiate with them when you can get more by force. I mean, Israel has always had since taking over the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, but the West Bank and East Jerusalem really the prize, right? Israel doesn't care about Gaza that much. It's an open-air prison. That's what they care about. But since they, you know, invaded those areas and took them over in 1967, they've always had a plan for incorporating them into Israel proper. It was first the Elon plan in the late 1960s which provided for an incorporation of about 40% of the West Bank into Israel proper. It seemed like an extremist position back then. If anything, it's kind of more modest than what they're doing right now. And they've been building on this gradually, year after year, battle after battle, settlement after settlement, walls and highways after walls and highways, you know, for more than 50 years. And I think they think because they do it slowly that people just won't, it it won't matter as much to people. If you were ethnically cleansing a place all at once, that would, that would cause you a problem diplomatically. That would cause you a problem with other, with other nations. They're doing this like a little bit at a time. You know, they're, expelling people from Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem. People who have lived there since who have lived there since the Nakba in nineteen forty eight. You know, they're basically saying you're Palestinians, you don't belong here. This New Jersey couple wants to live in your house, old people, get out. Oh boy. So I mean, what's my point? What's my final point? I don't know that I have one. I'm just saying this conflict is it seems intractable, but there is there there are solutions that can be had. It's just that <laughs> the Israelis have to be willing to negotiate with Palestinians in good faith and be willing to share the place that they call home. That is what needs to happen. And I don't see it happening, but... That's what needs to happen if there's going to be peace. You need to give people a stake in their homeland. That's what Israel needs to do. And that's what Americans need to understand about Israel-Palestine. It's just, there is no solution other than that. And if it continues, if they continue, if the Israeli government continues to press their case through the use of force, the thing that you saw happen over the last 12 days, 15 days, it's going to keep happening over and over again. It's just going to be more misery. And that's unacceptable. Especially on our dime. We should not be paying for that. Period. Anyway, that's all I got.
I'd like to hear what you have to say. You can leave a one-minute voice message at anchor.fm slash strangesound. You can also find me on Twitter at strangesoundpod. If you go to big-green.net and hit the contact link, you'll find other ways to get in touch with me, with uh, Big Green, with Strange Sound. There's links. You know, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. Strange Sound has a Facebook page. You can find that. You can like it. You can share it. Um, you can comment on the show. You can push back by all means. You know, hey, look, I know there's folks out there who don't agree with me on this. These are my opinions. I've arrived at them, you know, over the course of decades. Uh, if you want to try to change my mind, I'm happy to hear from you. You know, leave me a voice message, anchor.fm slash strange sound. Reach out to me on Twitter. I'm happy to have that conversation. In any case, stay safe out there, uh, get your shots, <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you.